session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, we're live on Instagram for the show, so no calls tonight. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Great Leveler by Walter Scheidel. The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. And actually, I got this book recommendation from my father who was watching, uh, he said, Farid Zakaria on, I think, on CNN, and that he had the author of this book, or maybe actually I think he himself talked about this book. I can't remember which one. Um, And so he said he thought it was very interesting, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age the 21st century. So I won't even be the first Farid to talk about this show uh, in the media, but I don't mind that at all. Looking forward to reading this book. Um, More and more, I'm focusing on inequality, and I think it's really the biggest illness we have in this world, and the cause of so much of the problems is inequalities when they're extreme. It's not to say we're ever going to have some kind of perfect equality of outcome, but that when we have large inequalities, whether it's financially, um, when it comes to power, whatever it might be, that really is the cause of a lot of issues, problems, uh, and suffering around the world for individuals and then globally and societally. I'm feeling that that's something I'm focusing on more and more. So looking forward to reading this, The Great Leveler, Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age, the 21st Century by Walter Scheidel. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is The Neuroscience of Suicidal Behavior by Kees Van Heeringen. And this was a, a very dense read, as you can imagine, The Neuroscience of Suicidal Behavior. Uh, a lot of, obviously, research from neuroscience that talks about the brain and different areas of the brain and how they might be uh, related to suicide, treatment of suicidal behavior and thinking and the sort. So, It was definitely a dense read, but a very meaningful read as well. And just for me to mention the word suicide on my show is very important because if we don't talk about things that are taboo, they continue to hurt us more than if we're able to talk about them. So things like suicide, sexual abuse, which unfortunately in a way is related to um, suicide, um, any other issue that might be taboo. I always want to talk about it on my show when it's related to psychology because I know that taboos allow for stigmas and for suffering to continue. And so suicide is a very important topic when you consider, he quotes a a statistic from 2012, that uh, over 800,000 people took their lives in 2012. Over 800,000. So we're not talking about some issue that only affects some people or a few people were losing close to a million people a year to suicide. And so, of course, that makes it a very important issue to to study. And of course, even if it was 
a small number, we'd want to save lives. But when we're talking about 800,000, that's telling us this is something uh, pretty ubiquitous around the world. And he shares statistics around the world. In some countries, there are some fluctuations and differences, but um, we do see it essentially in every region of the world. So uh, 800,000 people, that was a shock to me. I had to really check that number a few times to, to really make sure I was reading it right. Um, and so then you might think, well, there's some myths uh, about suicide. One of them is you can't stop someone from killing themselves. So essentially that there is no point to do anything. We can't do anything. We have to just accept it. And, and that's not the case at all. There are things that we can do as a society that has an impact. The ways um, even we talk about suicide, for example, the way even it's covered in the media, unfortunately, oftentimes when someone, especially like a celebrity, let's say, takes their own life, when it's covered, one of the things that happens is it's sensationalized and uh, the way the person took their life very often is described, sometimes described in detail, and that's not good. So uh, the curiosity is understandable that we want to know, but um, unfortunately when we discuss it in that way and it's put in the literature or the the media, it can have a negative effect as far as people um, take more likely to take their lives seeing that kind of a story. So um, that's an important myth about suicide. That's really uh, something you should keep in mind because I hear that people say it even when they talk about someone from the past. They say, oh, this person killed themselves. There's nothing we can do um, to have prevented him or her from taking their life. And sometimes there may not be at a certain time but very often there are things that we can do. So he shares some myths early in the book that I think are important to, uh, to mention. That one to me is a very big one. As he puts it, if a person is serious about killing themselves, then there's nothing you can do. And that's a myth. Uh, as he, the fact, he says, is often feeling actively suicidal is temporary, even if someone has been feeling low, anxious, or struggling to cope for a long period of time. This is why getting the right kind of support at the right time is so important. So don't think that you can't do anything about it. And related to that is the next myth. Talking about suicide is a bad idea as it may give someone the idea to try it. Myth. That's not true. So suicide can be a taboo topic in society, he says. Often people feeling suicidal don't want to worry or burden anyone with how they feel. And so they don't discuss it. Um, by asking directly about suicide, you give them permission to tell you how they feel. People who have felt suicidal will often say what a huge relief it is to be able to talk about what they are experiencing. Once someone starts talking, they've got a better chance of discovering other options to suicide. So this is a big one that people often think, you know, their friend, a family member, let's say a child, teenager, it seems to potentially be suicidal or even makes comments. I, I see this a lot with families where the parents will say, well, you know, when we got into this fight or he was really upset, he said, oh, I want to kill myself. But I think he just said something. So we ignored it. We pretend like it didn't happen. And of course, we very often, all people, but especially Iranians, we are very good at ignoring, unfortunately, and avoiding things. And we think that if we avoid or ignore an issue, it's going to go away when it does not go away by ignoring it. And we think, well, if I talk about suicide, what if I introduce the idea to them? And this is virtually never going to be the case. I try to be careful not to say things 
in absolute terms, but this is one of those where you can almost say it absolutely. So you're not going to give them the idea. Unfortunately, people um, tend to feel this way or they get to that place and they think that way, but you're not going to give them the idea. Even, and he talked about in the book, I remember being a uh, training clinician and you, you think, you see it with a client and you feel uh, anxious about bringing up suicide. And there are a few reasons for that. One is, of course, we might think, what if I introduce the idea? But also as a f- avoidance type of tendency, we might be afraid of the answer. What if they say yes, and now what do I do? And uh, usually what we want to make sure we keep in mind is you're not supposed to do it alone. So someone tells you they're suicidal and you might think they are uh, trusting you. But of course, if it comes to saving their life, and you maybe have to even let them know that you'll have to let others know, whether it's a family member, or especially if they're actively suicidal, you might have to call some kind of an authority as far as the uh, an ambulance even, or a pet team, or the police, something. You have to get someone involved to save their lives. We have to um, do that to save their life. So we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. I know it's not easy to talk about. That's why I want to talk about it tonight and try to bring it up on my show uh, every so often because I don't want us to get less comfortable with it. It's an uncomfortable topic, but the more we talk about it, the less uncomfortable it becomes. And this is what I would always tell people, and I was glad he put it the way he did. You know, people will say, well, what if I tell someone they're suicidal and I'm wrong? And what I tell people is, let's say your loved one is making you concerned that they could be suicidal. If you tell them, you're suicid- are you suicidal, you ask them in some way, and they say no, maybe at worst they, they laugh at you because they think, oh, I can't believe you thought I was so you know, in such a bad place, let's say, but, you know, something like that. Or maybe they get offended. They think, uh, how could you think I was in that space? And you can just let them know you were concerned about how they were doing. Uh, but that's in a way the worst case. And not only is that worst case not that bad, because a good comes of it. And this is something I always tell, especially of parents, but really of anyone who has a loved one. If you tell someone or ask them, are you suicidal? If they are not, At least what you've created is a bridge that now this person knows if I ever am in that place, I could ask this person, I could talk to this person, my mom, my dad, this friend, whoever it might be, because they've shown me they're not afraid of that topic. And often people are afraid themselves to bring it up if they're thinking about it. And so sadly, they maybe never tell someone. Very often people who are suicidal do tell someone or express it in some way, Um, but they usually they might not tell anyone and take their own life not knowing or thinking they can talk to anyone about it. So for me, it's so important that even by expressing that, you're letting them know, hey, this is not a topic I'm afraid of. You can come to me to talk about this issue. And of course, if you are right and they are suicidal, you might quite literally be saving their life. So to me, it's something, again, we are afraid to talk about it and I understand or we're uncomfortable to talk about it. But we have to think about the consequence. We're afraid of doing something, but the alternative is maybe someone dies. And I know that sounds dramatic or hyperbolic, but really that is the case when we're talking about suicide. So I thought that was very important. He mentioned a few times throughout the book that um, suicide is not one of those things that we have to be afraid to bring up because it might make someone more likely to take their lives. Uh, Another one is once a person has made a a serious suicide attempt, that person is unlikely to make another. That's a myth. Actually, they're quite likely or they're more likely. That's a big risk factor 
when you're looking at or assessing someone's risk factors for suicide that they have attempted before is actually a big risk. So, and then also attention seeking that he talks about that. That's a big one that people think they say, oh, they're just trying to get our attention. Well, um, they might be, and some people can use it in a manipulative way, but even if they're calling out for attention, that means they need something. And what I even tell people in general is take it seriously every time. One is they could be serious, so take it seriously. And even if they're not, one of the ways to actually make it so it's harder to use that as a way of manipulating, if that's the case, again, it's not likely, and I don't want to promote that, but even if that's your fear, is by taking it seriously. If you call the police and now or they go to the hospital and have to go through uh, a psychiatric evaluation, they'll realize, and you can even let them know whether it's your child or loved one, look, if you tell me you're suicidal, I'm going to take it seriously because I care about you. So I'm going to take action. I'm not going to ignore it because I care about you, because I love you. So this myth that people who are uh, saying they're suicidal, oh, it's just for attention. Well, just listen to them. They're crying for some kind of help. And you might not know exactly what that is, but it's better that than the opposite, which is they might take their own life. Uh, and so I thought that was very important that he listed these myths. And so the book then gets into some uh, understandings of the, the brain and how it's related. It was really interesting, to be honest, it's so dense. Often I was not able to absorb all of it. It's very complicated and to, to then explain it wouldn't be possible and might not really get us too far anyway. One important thing, there's something called a stress diathesis model. And so this is uh, a model that can be used or a way of looking at things for almost all illnesses, but especially psychiatric or psychological illnesses. So stress diathesis. Diathesis means a predisposition. So like a genetic, let's say, predisposition. And then the stress are things that happen in the life that then would trigger that predisposition to becoming some kind of illness or let's say suicidal thinking. So for example, people will say, well, is depression genetic? And depression has a genetic basis, which is true of all um, psychological issues or diagnoses, but it doesn't mean there's just some gene that if you have that gene, you for sure will become depressed or schizophrenia. There are some genes that make it more likely, but you need some kind of stress in the life. And stress doesn't just mean the way we think of stress. It means trauma, abuse, um, some type of life experiences that then trigger or bring out this diathesis, this predisposition. So you might see that in, in lots of studies or explanations for different disorders or diseases, stress diathesis. And he gets into uh, what some of those, that diathesis from a genetic standpoint and what we see in the brain, and then also stress, what types of things might lead to suicide. And as you might predict or think, one of the things that we see often is childhood abuse physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, parental neglect, all of these things, these ELAs, early life events, uh, early life, what was it, ELA, I think, um, early life adversity maybe, um, they can all contribute to the brain changing in ways. And it's so sad when you consider, it doesn't mean your life has to be ruined in some way, but we do see that long-lasting changes can get created or damage can be created at a very young age based on what the child experiences. And so, you know, in therapy, we often talk to 
the client and there's also these cliches about therapy. Oh, what did your mom do? What did your dad do? Did your mom not hug you enough? And we say it in kind of a joking way. But what we see is that what we thought or we understood to be true and what we saw people experience, we can see happening on the brain level, which is quite amazing. And so I won't get into the details of how the brain it gets can damage or changed. And really it's hard for me to explain it, especially off the top of my head. Um, using my brain, but uh, we see that there are these changes that do take place. Now, this book had a lot of important information. That's why I wanted to talk more uh, about this book and continue talking about it after uh, the commercial break, because again, suicide is such an important topic for us to discuss the neuroscience of suicidal behavior by Keith Van Heeringen. Well, I'll discuss that further after the break. We'll be right back. Back. So in the previous segment, and I'm going to continue now talking about the book, The Neuroscience of Suicidal Behavior by Keith Van Heeringen. And as I mentioned, it really was fascinating to see um, from a neuroscience perspective what's going on in the brain in general, but also when it comes to suicide. And sometimes I, I, I'm really um, grateful for the field of neuroscience. Uh, really, when you read books like this, a lot of the books I read, I'm so grateful to the scientists that do research in different fields and, and it's really quite fascinating what they do and the, the ingenuity and the hard work of course to get it done but especially with neuroscience as a therapist as a psychologist I appreciate it because it can make more real uh, the experiences the pains that people express or have in their lives when very often we don't get to see it or we have what we think of as invisible pain but it can make it more visible. Someone breaks their leg, we can show you in the x-ray, you see it, we believe it more. Someone is depressed, we say, oh, come on, get over it. It's just in your head. And what neuroscience is doing is saying, yes, it is in your head. There are things happening in your brain or that have happened to your brain or the way your brain is functioning or neurotransmitters in the brain that sometimes we can measure now and show what that pain is. So it makes it much more clear and much more real to say, look, here is uh, the brain and we can see how it's been affected by what you are going through. So in a way, I joke when people say, oh, it's all in your head about someone who's depressed. And I'm like, yes, something's going on in their head, something real. Just like when you break your leg, you can say it's all in your leg. Yeah, it's in your leg. You broke a bone. Uh, it's serious. It needs some um, healing. It needs some uh, support. And it's a very real pain. And also, and he mentioned in the book, Physical pain and psychological pain is virtually indistinguishable in the brain, meaning you really can't tell them apart. And even he talks about how sometimes painkillers might even be able to use, uh, be used for extreme suicidal uh, moments. Of course, painkillers can have their own issues, but it just shows psychological pain or psych ache. He used that term in the book. I hadn't seen it before. Uh, and physical pain. Really, we think of them as these separate things and so different, but they're really not. They're just pains of being, whether it's physical, we think of it, or mental or emotional. It's just pain that we experience. So I thought that was quite interesting. Now, he also mentioned a book, something uh, that at first kind of struck me, because when we think of someone who's suicidal, we think of how they've went through something very hard or bad. And of course, they have. But he mentioned that rather than thinking that suicide is a normal response to abnormal situations, 
It's not that. He says suicide is not a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. On the contrary, suicidal behavior is an abnormal reaction to a normal situation with which a clear majority of people will cope without becoming suicidal. And so at first it felt a little bit like, oh, well, if someone's suicidal, we're saying not in some way it's their fault, but that they're going through it that way. But then when you read the book more and you understand what he's coming from, it means that when we understand, you know, someone might go through a breakup. Many people do. They're sad, but not everyone becomes suicidal. Some people are more prone to that than others. And so that I can understand it in the book. It can explain or give you some understanding of how the brain might be different in individuals who have suicide so I th- or who will think of suicide as an option or more likely to think of it as an option. And thinking about suicide, as he talked about in the myths, is something that almost everyone will consider in some way. And of course, there's different degrees of, of thinking about um, suicide, but many people, it'll cross their mind in some way. It may be more what we might call passive suicidal ideation. Uh, I wish I wasn't here. Or let's say you're going through a lot of stress or a difficult time. You might think, I almost wish I didn't wake up tomorrow. That is um, less extreme than I'm actively going to do something to take my own life. But so many people will, will have those types of thoughts. But it's, there's a difference between having the thought in a passive way or different types of ways and actually acting on it. And not everyone gets to that point. It doesn't mean that not everyone could. But we do see that some people will respond to the same type of a uh, life event differently. And people who are more prone to suicide, they tend to, he talks about some things that we do see. For example, um, there's some studies like showing that they might be more prone to seeing the negative or expecting the negative than to seeing the positive. Even, for example, they'll be more sensitive to seeing like an angry face. They'll have a stronger reaction and a less strong reaction to a happy face. So even something like that might trigger someone with a brain um, who's more prone to suicide uh, than someone else. And they, that same type of negative bias towards themselves, the world, and the future, sometimes called the, the Beck um, depressive triad or negative triad, uh, they can think those things. So you can imagine if you don't feel good about yourself, you don't feel good about the world, and you don't feel good about the future, that can contribute to not feeling very good and can contribute to hopelessness, which is one of the cognitive markers of suicide. When people feel hopeless, they can feel like there's no rescue. There's no rescue from how bad they are feeling. And so it can lead to this sense that there's no better option than suicide or that that is a good option, unfortunately which is not true in the sense that we know that they can feel better. I remember in grad school hearing a kind of uh, quaint way in the sense that it's like very short, but it makes sense that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. So meaning that you're not always going to feel that way, but unfortunately taking that act of suicide might make a permanent change and that you lose your life. Um, but as a reminder that you won't always feel the way you are feeling in that moment. But unfortunately, we see that in the suicidal brain. And again, I don't want to label it like some people have this clear difference, but some individuals are more prone to seeing that negative or not seeing the positive when they look to the future. So we see that there is this tendency to see things in this negative way, unfortunately, that can make it more likely that you uh, would see suicide as a good 
option or as the only option you might feel. And now um, there's a lot of heartbreaking research when you're talking about abuse, but sometimes you can't help but be fascinated by what you observe because at one point in the book he was talking about the different types of abuse and how they might affect the brain differently. And there are some studies that show, for example, parental verbal abuse, as it says in the book here, is associated with changes in auditory areas. So hearing the abuse might affect parts of the brain related to auditory hearing, um, whereas witnessing domestic violence, so seeing, let's say, your parents be violent towards each other when they have arguments, is linked with changes in visual areas. And it's quite amazing that 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 would happen, that we see this distinction. And that also, when it comes to childhood sexual abuse, what we sometimes see are changes in um, facial recognition, but also in the thinning of portions of somatosensory cortex involved in processing tactile sensations from the genitals, meaning that someone who has been through childhood sexual abuse, the parts of their brain that have to do with feelings, um, a physical feeling from the genitals might become less strong. So we see that the type of abuse might lead to different types of damage or changes in the brain. And here's where we get to this interesting dynamic of when you think of damage to the brain in these cases, if you hear verbal abuse, your auditory might change. If you see something, domestic violence, you might see uh, the visual centers. And then if you have sexual abuse, your genitals, you might have a different way of sensing things. On one hand, if there's probably some kind of damage that's going on, but if we try to see if there's some kind of an adaptive way of explaining it too, if you have, for example, seen something really bad, it might make sense that you want to see less to protect yourself. Or if you've experienced childhood sexual abuse, you might want to not feel as much in your genitals because it's been linked to something so bad that it might make sense. We can see some adaptive way of feeling less. And so here again, I've worked with people who have experienced childhood sexual abuse, studied it, studied different um, therapists and psychologists talk about it. And we do know that when people have experienced childhood sexual abuse, very often it will affect uh, their sexual experience, even as an adult, even with a loving companion. And so this shows that there can be actual changes in their brain that have taken place that can affect how they feel, how much they feel when they are being sexual, even though they are in a different context. And so another thing, we can see how the brain explains this, but we've always said that very often, and not just when we're talking about extreme abuse, but other things that we experience, the brain or the, the psyche, we would call it the psyche, but we can see the brain, how that relates to that, is picking or developing strategies to survive in a certain environment but then now when you even aren't in that environment, you use that same strategy, unfortunately. So if your parents were not very trustworthy as far as taking care of you and getting your needs met, you might have learned that people can't be relied on. And now you don't you trust other people less or you expect people can't be trusted or you don't even let yourself trust them because you're using that same strategy that you've now adopted as your life strategy when you're acting with other people that weren't those original people. So it was quite fascinating to, to see that. And now just in a few minutes that I want to talk more about this book before the end of the segment. Also, you know, he talks about predicting suicide. And unfortunately, we're not very good at it. Even clinicians 
have a hard time predicting suicide. And I think myself included and almost any therapist I've talked to, or I think virtually any therapist will have these experiences where you have a client who's, let's say, very depressed or close to suicide or mentions suicide in a session, and you might explore how serious they seem to be or what's going on, but you don't know for sure. And you might leave that session, let's say, if you didn't take action of hospitalizing them or whatnot, and you feel a little uneasy because you're not totally sure were they uh, actually suicidal or not, should I have done more? And so I can think of several of my own colleagues or in graduate school where, where this would come up because we're not that good at predicting. And so he explains some models for trying to, to predict suicide better from cognitive ways, doing certain tests to uh, brain studies and scans, which are obviously hard to do in general, but might become easier over time. And that they're trying to get better at that. Because again, this can be a, a literally a life-saving development. And so he shares how using different types of methods from even measuring certain things in the blood, uh, we might be able to figure things out, biomarkers of suicide or suicidal thinking. So it's quite fascinating, but a lot of the science still has to be developed um, to really be able to have a model that can be used in a clinical setting. But there are some things that are brought up here, along with different types of treatment that he shares in the last chapter. Um, things like antidepressants can be helpful. Um, but of course, we know that it can uh, you know, have a, a different types of effects. Also, lithium was an interesting one. So lithium is a mood stabilizer used very often for bipolar disorder. Um, but he, he said how even if some places where there's more lithium in the water, in the drinking water, they see lower levels of um, suicide in those areas where there's a low level of lithium in the water, it can affect that. So that was quite remarkable to see. Uh, lithium can actually be very uh, good for anti-suicidal types of um, uh, effects. And then he also talks about things like ketamine, and ketamine can be useful. That's a newer drug that is used. And then things like electroconvulsive therapy. Now, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, has a very bad reputation because of a few things. One is the way it used to be done was more archaic, even people would like break bones because these strong shocks were sent through the body and the brain. And so people would have really bad experiences. Even still, they can have some amnesia for a little bit of time. Um, and also things like the, uh, the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where it was really shown the whole experience there was how you know, bad they were treated in the mental hospital, but also the ECT was a big part of that, how horrible it was. And so he says it's a shame in a way because ECT can be so helpful for people who are very depressed and suicidal, but people are very resistant to it or see it as like a last, last, last resort when really it shouldn't be. Then there's various types of transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS, repetitive type, um, uh, alternative. There's like three or four different types of trans cranial magnetic stimulation where they stimulate the brain a little bit less extreme or looks ex less extreme than ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, uh, and other, he talks about other new techniques. And then psychotherapy also can have uh, anti-suicidal effects. He actually says, you know, it's not that it has no side effects. It's possible. This might, I don't want to scare people to think this, but you can actually um, make people um, more suicidal in therapy, potentially at the beginning. If someone is suicidal, they should get help. I don't want that to 
to make you afraid, but we have to just be aware that when you bring up issues, it, it can bring up things. It can make someone more aware of things or lead to more rumination. So we do have to be careful about that. But I'll close with this, which was interesting. He said, making a distinction between therapy and drug treatments in a way or, or neurochemical treatments should not really be done because in both cases, what you're doing is you're changing the brain, um, which as a therapist is quite exciting. I remember, I think it was one of my professors, Dr. Euler, who passed after I had her as a professor uh, in graduate school. But she said, what's so cool about therapies is like you're doing brain surgery, but just by talking with them and over time, it changes the brain. And, and that is really the case. The brain actually can change through the course of therapy. It also can change through having healthy relationships as well. But the reason why I think he's, he was saying don't make this distinction is because they're both having structural, functional changes in the brain. So to make them so different, kind of like when we think of, um, you know, I was saying physical pain and emotional pain is so different. Really, they might both be trying to do the same things, but in different ways. And it seems like they can have different types of effects, which is why very often for depression or even, let's say, suicide, um, a uh, medicine and therapy can be the best option or combinations of therapies can be good because they might have different uh, effects or different ways of affecting what is going on. So I thought that was interesting that he said it's really a falsehood to make this distinction between therapy, let's say, and medication, psychotherapy and, and pharmacological or uh, neuroscience types of influences because all of them are trying to make these changes in the brain, which essentially points to the fact that um, what's going on, we sometimes think of, uh, you know, because we can't understand the brain fully, we don't see the ways that things are happening, but really everything that experience, we experience or changes us, it could be seen in the brain if we were able to understand it and measure it. We're just not advanced enough in our technology as much as we've made advancements to fully understand what's going on. And sometimes this can feel when you deconstruct something, it could seem to, you know, take away the romantic romanticization of something like love. If I can show you what love looks like and it's these chemicals and dopamine and that, you might feel like, well, now love doesn't seem that exciting, but it doesn't mean it takes anything away from it. We're just explaining what's going on, which still feels the experience of it is amazing. And you can't, you can show it in a brain scan, but you can never sh show what it feels like. That's an experience, but we are able to measure these things. And the more we understand the brain, the more techniques and technologies advance, we'll be able to understand them even further. So I thought that was quite fascinating. And the overall scope and goal of the book is to help understand suicide better, but also then to eventually, hopefully prevent it or not eventually, but keep trying to do the work to prevent it and get better at predicting and preventing suicide. So I'm very happy I read the book and wanted to share it with you. And again, just wanted to share the topic of suicide. So we keep it in our mind that even me saying it over and over again, I hope makes it so people feel more comfortable saying it themselves and being able to say it to a loved one. If that time comes, whether you're the one that's suffering or someone you know is suffering. So that was the book, The Neuroscience of Suicidal Behavior by Keith Van Heeringen. Let's go to our last commercial break. Welcome back. So in the uh, last segment, um, I wanted to talk about a documentary or really, I guess, a docu-series that I saw. Uh, I saw basically all of it this weekend. Um, it's called The Vow, and 
It is about Nexium or ESP, which was a self-help type of a group or transformation type of a group that um, started, I think, not that long ago. But uh, as you might imagine that they made a series out of it, it turned out there was a lot of dark things going on in this group, Nexium, um, which is spelled like N-V-I-X-M, something like that. And um, it was really fascinating for me to watch. And once I saw one episode, I watched all nine of them over the weekend because I was fascinated and I got lucky. I discovered it and then it ended up that the last episode was last night. So I recommend it if you're interested in these psychological type documentaries. Um, many of you have probably done or know about different types of self-help groups. And I don't want to say, of course, when I'm talking about this group, that every one of them is the same and they're all doing these types of things because what was happening here was pretty extreme. But I might make some general comments that might uh, apply to all of them, just things to be aware of that I think is important. Of course, I do this show because I believe in people working on themselves, improving themselves, growing, uh, even transforming over time. Sometimes that word to me, I don't, I think it's not very extreme, but still you can transform over time. Maybe the key part of that sentence is over time that it usually takes time. Uh, nonetheless, um, you know, I, I believe in self-help or working on ourselves. Sometimes I don't like that term. Self-help has a certain, uh, you know, connotation to it, but we can definitely work on ourselves. So I definitely uh, believe in that. But so in this group, Nexium, we see, um, a leader, there's usually a guru in these, and in this one, his name is Keith Ranieri, uh, something like that. And he is, he claims to be uh, one of the smartest people in the world, having an IQ of 240, which I, I try to look that up a little bit. Almost any IQ test, you can't really get a score like that, but there could be some, there are some IQ tests they make that are four higher types of IQs, but, uh, you know, something like that doesn't really make sense. To me, and it's not that meaningful, and also even if someone had an IQ of whatever it is, they are wrong some of the time, or definitely wrong sometimes, which is something I'll get to. And as is usually the case here, we had a guru who, as he kind of grew within this type of group or within um, the trainings and the way they talked about him, they called him the vanguard. They wouldn't even say really his name. In general, you have to talk about him in a certain way, but he was coming off and presented himself and showed as someone who really know, knew everything, knew all about how to make people um, better and cure people in all sorts of ways, uh, really knew how to uh, make you whole or make you better, had all these practices, techniques, had figured out how human beings work, um, and people really bought into it, as is often uh, the case. Some people uh, on Instagram are asking about the name. The name of the documentary again is The Vow, V-O-W. And so w when you see what's going on, you see people excited, they're growing, they are um, helping people to learn more about themselves, to to expand, to get rid of their fears and, uh, and different types of things, which are good. Um, but then you see there's a sinister side behind it. So one thing I'll mention is you know, these types, any kind of group really usually, and this was true of this, this movie when I was seeing the group they had here, it doesn't mean it's all bad and really, so it's interesting. So obviously the problem is saying it's perfect and nothing about it is wrong or bad, but it doesn't mean it's all bad. Even when I was watching, there were some things I was like, yeah, I really agree with what they're 
teaching there, or at least there, maybe I agree with most of it, but I would word it differently, but close enough. Some of them were pretty basic things, so I would agree with them. And so I say this not to in, in some way defend them or defend some group, but actually it's to make us more aware because what happens is you might say, oh, but, but that part is true, so it can't be bad. But that's not the case. Even um, someone who is doing something very um, bad might actually have a lot of good in it as well. So that's why I say that part that it's not all bad. There's a lot of really important teachings that you can get from almost any type of self-help group, even this one, Nexium, which is N-X-I-V-M. Someone just put it on the Instagram live. Also ESP, um, Executive Success Programs, I think, something like that, ESP. Um, there was a lot of good things there, and that seems like it's helpful. And that's obviously when we look at people getting sucked into what looks like a cult or becomes a cult on day one, it's not that, Hey, here's a cult where you're going to have to praise this guru and essentially do whatever he says. If you want to get closer into the group, it's presented in a way of, look, we're going to help you get over fears and this, and we have the technology and, you know, the guru knows things that no one else knows. Um, and that to me is always, uh, you know, really a scary thing. and something we have to be aware of anytime someone tells you that they know something or make something seem so simple, like life is easy, relationships are easy, I have all the answers. They're either selling you something or they're selling you themselves. And in these kinds of cases, it's both because they have these classes that are thousands of dollars, but then also they want to make themselves this guru. Now, I'm looking at the time, I only have a few minutes and there's so much I'd want to say about this. But long story short, and you know, in a way it's a spoiler, but check out the documentary or docu-series if you want. But there's things like, uh, you know, they'll say sex cult, but not necessarily that. But, you know, this leader, Keith Rainieri, was, you know, had many women around him. And over time, you see that he's having sexual relationships with multiple women, manipulating, seducing them, um, using gaslighting when people would be upset. And people really just thought, well, he's, you know, larger than life. He, he, there's something right about everything. And that's the scary thing is that when people get sucked into this, where they think the guru knows better than everyone. So there's some reason behind it, no matter what he or she, but very often we see he is doing, it has to be right. So even if he's saying you have to, you know, you should have sex with me, there's some good in it. And even they would think that they're going to get more enlightened by having sex with him. That's what they would essentially, you know, were thinking that he's so, uh, you know, enlightened and it's just this being that emanates so much wisdom and goodness that that was a way to grow, which is always interesting to me that um, you, you see this so often, whether it's in these types of gurus or other things where uh, they help people by having sex with them. It's a very common thing we see. And usually, and almost always, for some reason, the people that will be helped by their um, sexual gift in this way is are people who are attractive. They usually are having sex with the younger, attractive girls in the group, which is what we saw in this case too. So, uh, you know, it's not surprising, but you, you, you see it happening time and time again. And so, you know, a few points to make about this again, when you see people getting, um, into these kinds of things, we often think I would never do that, but victim blaming, I know it can be a cliche term to say, but it's true that you don't really know what it's like to be in a situation until you're there. And all of us believe things that don't make sense if you really look at it. You might not think you do. And we've believed in someone maybe in a way that was too much. It doesn't necessarily mean to this extreme. And then if you're in that context, things start to change. When you see people 
doing it, when you see everyone is believing in it, you're in this type of environment, this energy, you start to get more and more uh, engaged in it in a way that you might not, you slowly, kind of like when they say the frog in the boiling water, you slowly make it hot and before the frog jumps out, they burn because they don't realize it's getting hotter. That's kind of what happens here. But in these types of self-help groups, one of the things that I often see is that they try to make things, again, this is a generalization, but you just something to be aware of. When they make things seem so simple that if you want to change, we're going to do it just like that. All it takes is two minutes and whatever issues you had from your childhood, we're going to get rid of them instantly. Might there be some technique? I try to be open to know that, you know, I don't know everything and people are going to make advancements that things that seemed impossible will be possible at some point. But you at least want to be skeptical of these kinds of things, especially long lasting changes. Sometimes in these types of classes, you'll see that, you know, in that moment, you almost have this feeling of a high with so much love and support with people around you. You think you have changed forever, but I've even seen these groups. I actually participated in a group, not this one, but something like um, uh, a self-help type of group, similar to something like Landmark Forum and those types of things. And, and I saw where people thought, okay, they changed forever, and then we'd be back two months later, and they're still having that same issue. So it seemed like it, quote-unquote, was cured, but it was still there, and that's very often the case. So there's that side of it. But going back to the guru, being aware that when someone tells you they know everything, there is this desire to think we found someone that knows all the answers because they're going to help us. This need for idealizing someone. Even Kohut, I think, talks about that as one of the needs that we have. And so very often we still have that if it maybe was not met in our childhood. But we're looking for someone who knows everything, who doesn't make any mistakes. And they are looking for having that good feeling of knowing everything and being praised and they in a way people find each other so the one who wants to be praised and the people who are looking for someone to consider a god but it's once again a reminder that and this is actually even the start of the show is talking about the next book is about inequality that humans are humans are there people that are wise about certain things and know things and have studied things yes but when we put people on these pedestals when we turn them into gods no one is a god no one from the past no one now no human being is a god they're all human beings even if they're brilliant einstein brilliant genius but he made mistakes even in science i've mentioned that before maybe it sounds like i'm trashing him i think he's probably considered maybe the greatest scientist of the 20th century but i just say that so we think or at least don't stop thinking when someone says something i'm talking on this show i'm sure even today you can look through my 50 odd minutes or whatever and find some things i said that weren't quite right or aren't um, uh, sm smart or weren't the right thing or should have been said differently or were completely wrong. And so I try to share my ideas and I try to present them in a way that makes sense and hopefully is helpful. But I also hope people do not um, think that I would ever think I'm always right. And anyone who tells you that they are, they're trying to trick you. Someone who always says they know all the things. And if you're looking at them and if you realize you don't want them to ever be wrong, that's a problem. And if they want you to never tell them that they're wrong, this is a huge problem as well. I might continue about this on Wednesday's show because I did think it was a very interesting, um, to me, anything about looking at psychology of these types of things and how people get sucked into some kind of a group and start to think so differently. And then when they come out of it and how they can't believe they thought the way they thought is very fascinating to me. And seeing how there's always these gurus, people out there, 
um, who are trying to tell you they know it all when they don't. So we are out of time, so I do got to wrap up, and maybe I'll talk about this on Wednesday's show. Big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dolokwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.